I'm going to continue preaching from that today. Uh, but before I preach, I would like to invite uh, Brother Tamil to come and greet us. They have been down from Wisconsin visiting family, and uh, this church is like a second home to them when they're in this area, and we are glad that they're here. We love them and bring so much value to us whenever they are with us, and I'd like for him to come and just talk to you. Whatever is on his heart, he can just share with you. Thank you. Praise God. It's always good to be here. Um, I was thinking a little bit about the fact that I, I know the weather has kept some people away, and uh, there's not a large group here, but every time I come, it doesn't matter. I, I feel the presence of the Lord so strongly. And uh, the interesting thing about that, obviously, is that uh, we have the Lord with us all the time. I mean, fortunate to have uh, received the baptism of the Holy Ghost um, a long time ago, back when I was 12 years old. And so, you know, God's presence is in me, but when you come into a place like this, it's different. Um, I think it has to do with uh, Scripture that says where people come together in his name, there he is in the midst of them. And, uh, and while that may seem a little bit strange because God's everywhere, he is omnipresent, that God's presence was here before we walked in, what is the significance of that Scripture? Therefore, that says that here he is when we come together. And I think the answer to that is that God... He's with us to manifest himself. He's here to do something for us, no matter how many there are. And so um, your pastor was right that, uh, that you could receive something from the Lord. We were here last week, and uh, I want to say that I have such a high regard for your pastor. And um, I know he um, not just a man of God, but he's a man that spends time in the Word. And I've been fed uh, every time I've come. And... Now, that's, uh, that can become an accomplishment when, when I've pastored and I've spent hours and hours and hours preparing messages every week. And uh, I've heard thousands of messages over the, over the years. And so when I come away from, uh, from a service where I thought, wow, that was so refreshing, um, that's, uh, that's, that's a wonderful thing. I would never want to get to the place where I walk into an assembly where I'm thinking, I, I, I knew that, I heard that, you know. Um, so last week I was here, and of course I heard your pastor talk about love. And he said something that I knew. He quoted the scripture I was well familiar with, but this time it was different. This time uh, it reminded me of uh, an experience that, that uh, Diane and I had um, We've been married for, well, now 51 years. And uh, so when we first got married, of course, Diane came from, and I won't get into um, her life, but it was a, a very difficult life. And uh, in fact, when I, when I think about it, it really it brings me to tears oftentimes. But because of her experience, um, you know, she, uh, she didn't think that she could be loved. And I knew that... Uh, I knew she struggled with love because I would say to her um, that I thought she was beautiful. And when I said that to her, uh, she would say, don't say that because it's not true. We, 
we were into our, our marriage about 10 years, and there was an incident that happened. And uh, the circumstances were such that uh, I'd, I didn't do anything wrong, but, but she was so hurt. And so when I had questioned her about it, um, she, uh, she broke into tears, and she said, I'm sorry. She said, I, I just, I'm just so insecure. And I realized it was my failure. It wasn't hers. It was my failure that I somehow my love didn't make her secure. Pastor last week talked about perfect love casts out fear. And I realize now my love wasn't perfect, not as it needed to be. It wasn't when I say perfect, it wasn't it wasn't complete. At that particular time, then we were 10 years into the relationship and marriage. And uh, so I, I realized that I had been failing and I I started working on making her feel more secure. And it was, uh, it was two and a half years later. So here we were married 12 and a half years. And finally, she felt the love that I have for her. I was driving on the road. She was in the car with me, and I looked at her, and I said, you're beautiful. <laughs> and she said, ah. She said, you're just looking at me through eyes of love. She was saying, basically, she said, I'm not beautiful. Nobody in the world thinks I'm beautiful, but you do because you love me. And let me say this, okay, that it doesn't matter what our life was like before we came to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. He loved us. Sometimes we, and I certainly believe there was a time in my life when I was unlovable, but he loves us. And he demonstrated it in such a way that we should never, ever, ever question his love. So not only has he done that for us, but he set an example for our own love. The whole idea of a pastor, and he's doing a wonderful job, is to help us come to the place where we come to the fullness of the stature of Christ. In other words, that we emulate Christ in our life. And, uh, and so if we can just learn to love the way that Jesus loves, we will have accomplished that. So that's why this series is so important, so important and I'm looking forward to what your pastor has to say. God bless you all. Thank you. That was wonderful. We're so glad that they're here and choose to worship at Branches Church when they are town. And uh, just wonderful people, and your life will benefit getting to know them and um, even spending, spending some time with them. Uh, he and I, we've had the chance to go golfing. We had planned to go fishing, and um, instead we're going to do something else instead of fishing. But uh, every time that I get to ask him questions, there's something I, I can gain. And um, that's, the way, that's the way that the body of Christ should be, is that we gain from one another. Because we all have different experiences and things that we go through that uh, can help us to grow, help us to grow. Amen. So I mentioned that um, in the snow yesterday, I, I took my daughter out, some of the neighborhood kids. In the back of our house, uh, there's a large hill um, that the neighborhood kids kind of chose. That was the hill to, to sled down. And so I took Elsie out, and uh, we, we borrowed one of the sleds from one of the kids, and they took turns and would slide down the hill. There's probably about six or seven kids out there. And uh, I, what I noticed going out, of course, I haven't been out in the back very much, but there's, um, there was a briar 
that was starting to grow up out of the side of some of uh, some of our landscaping that's in the back that needs some attention, but just didn't, frankly, didn't get much attention this year. Um, and so I noticed that the kids were getting really close to that briar, and so I went in and I decided I would cut it down. It was just, you know, a little thing, just kind of hung out a little bit, not anything big, uh, but I cut it out and I cleaned it up and I took it to the front and uh, threw it in the trash can. And while I was doing it, I just started thinking about this series. And uh, today, a lot of what I'm going to preach is going to be some of that tending to our life. And I know what happens whenever we, whenever we go through things like this. We read scripture. Sometimes we have a tendency to not look at ourselves and reflect ourselves. But we oftentimes will look and remember situations or circumstances where uh, someone else did not treat us the way that that scripture says we should be treated. Am I the only one who that happens to? No? Okay. I'm glad we'll all admit it today. So what I'm asking you to do today is like yesterday where I had uh, not given the attention to uh, the landscaping that should have been gave this summer. Um, today's a day for us to look in our life and find some briar pieces, that some things that need to be pulled out and need to be changed. So whenever I preach this morning, I want you to look at your own life. Last Sunday, I talked about the distinction of love. I mentioned uh, predominantly two terms in Greek that were uh, used in Scripture, phileo, which is uh, tenderness or brotherly love. It's where uh, we get like the name of the city, Philadelphia, uh, the city of brotherly love. And this particular word, phileo, occurs 415 times in the New Testament. Now, this term, it's an emotional attachment. It means to have an emotional attachment uh, to a person or to uh, something. And in those 415 times in the New Testament that that word is used, half of those framed uses are negative. Half of those framed uses are negative. And so what that means is that this emotional attachment, while it's often what we think about is love. The problem with only having that kind of love is that that type of love can be lost and it can be diminished, this emotional attachment. And what's interesting is in the Word of God, there was never, this particular word is never used in any command to man to love God. God never says, you need to phileo me. He always says the other term, which is agape, love. And uh, I even used the example and talked about where Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, and he asked him three times. And two of those three times, he asked him, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me selflessly? Do you love me uh, not based in emotion, but based in this commitment of will and decision? And uh, Peter said, his, Peter's reply is, you, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I have this attachment to you. I have a tenderness toward you. And eventually the Lord kind of lowered the standard and said, well, if you phileo me, if you love me like that, then feed my sheep. In 
The New Testament, agape, the other word that I mentioned, occurs 320 times in the New Testament. And it's the only word used in association with God's commands that we're to love him, to love our brother, to love our sister, to love our spouse. And since it is commanded, what we have to understand about this is this love is not based in emotion. It's not based in how I feel. It's not based in, uh, in that, that butterfly feeling of attraction or emotion. It is based solely and wholly in my decision and in my will that I will love someone or I will love God. In the world, what the world does and what Satan has done is taken the idea of love and has turned it to this emotion or a feeling that we all recognize as being a description of love. But that really is not the highest form of love. The highest form of love is a selfless love that is not based in how it's reciprocated. It's not based in what's going on at the time, the emotion of the moment. It is based solely in a decision and then having the will to follow that decision. I had a friend one time, and he was telling me about a conversation he was having with a peer of his. They had both grown up in the same lifestyle of drugs and alcohol and, and, and gangs and uh, promiscuity, pursuing uh, pleasures. And one of them finally came out of it and made a decision that he was going to serve God, live for God, and is now a pastor planting a church. And the other one, they still remain close. He has struggled and tried to break away from that lifestyle, has tried to come out, but he struggles. And they were having this conversation over the struggle, and he said, he asked my pastor friend, he said, when, when did it finally click for you and that you were able to be free and you, your life was straight and you were committed to God? And my friend thought for a moment, and he said, Every morning. Every morning. And he's like, what do you mean? And he said, every morning I have to wake up. And in that morning, in that moment, I decide I love God more than I love this world. And I'm going to serve him. He said it was not a single moment where it clicked and everything worked out. He said, every morning I have to make that decision. And that is serving God. That is loving God. It's making that decision and then having the will to follow up. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is what I'm going to preach from today, Paul lays out some things for us. We're going to progress through those scriptures, what love is and what love is not. There are nine things that he says love is not or love does not do. And then there are five things that he says that love is and, and that love brings about love uh, acts in certain ways. And so we're going to look at each one of those. And then I just want to talk about what those things are, because we have to understand that love is not like what the world tries to portray. It's not that emotion. It's not that commitment or, or that sense of uh, a short-term commitment that people can fall in and out of. Love is not something that dissipates. The type of love we're talking about is a commitment and a will to follow up that love. And so these nine things that Paul writes down, 
what we have to understand is that any of the nine things that love is not, if those things are present, then it's technically not love. It's not love as God defines love, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to define love according to Scripture. So 1 Corinthians uh, 13 and 4 starts out with this, love suffers long and is kind, and I'm going to come back to that. But the next thing it says is love does not envy. Love does not envy. Envy, if you think about envy, envy tries to deprive someone of something that they have. It looks at what they have and says, well, I'm envious of that, and I should be entitled to that, and tries to take what they have and remove it from them. Also included in this Greek definition is the word jealousy. So it's not only just envy, but it's jealousy. And it's looking at someone and becoming jealous, desiring to have the thing that they have for yourself, and envy having the, the, such envy that you're willing to deprive them of it so that you can have it for yourself. It's almost like that sense of, well, if no one can have it, or if I can't have it, no one can have it. It's envy. It's jealousy. He says love is not that. Love is not this envy. Love is not this jealousy. Instead, by comparison, love is generous in the face of competition. Um, all of us have at some point in our life felt threatened. We felt threatened by something. Someone maybe came into the company we're working for, had the same skills, maybe even a little bit better than us, and we felt threatened. Or we just felt unsecure in what I, we brought to the table. Love looks at that competition and says, I don't care if they supplant me. I don't care if they take from me what I have. I am going to be generous toward them in the face of that competition. That's what love does. Love, the next thing he says, love does not parade itself. And the reference here of parading itself is directed at someone who brags. Someone who brags. And they're bragging and boasting, a boastful person. Someone who likes to show off. Love is not like that. Love is not like that. I can think of people that they boast in what they've done for others. Well, if you're boasting and you're prideful about something you've done for someone, trying to show them love, was, what was the real motivation? It couldn't have been love because it was more about fulfilling yourself. Love has no anxious need to impress other people outside of the love relationship. God doesn't come and do a miracle for you and then immediately run and come tell me that he did a miracle for you. He doesn't have to because he knows what he did for you. Now, you'll come and tell me or you'll tell someone else, if I do something for my wife, I don't have to go tell someone, look what I did for my wife. If it, if it merited a remark, my wife would go and tell someone on her own. And that's okay. But the pride and the boastfulness, love has no anxious need to impress other people. I saw an interview just recently. It made me think of this scripture. A man uh, gave away $10,000 to a homeless person. Pretty incredible act, you would say, right? I mean, it's 
I wouldn't mind having someone come up and give me $10,000. It would help a little bit. It would help a lot, actually. But he recorded this on his phone. And, of course, in our social media age, this, this interaction went viral. And he was called upon to be interviewed. And the interviewer asked him, he said, why did you do this? What motivated you? And his answer intrigued me because his answer was, I wanted to see his response. And I knew that the video would go viral. People would want to see this kind of stuff. Now I ask you, was that man concerned about helping the homeless man? No, it was a selfish motivation. He was not concerned for the homeless man at all. He was concerned with the attention that could be brought through the video, even though it it cost him $10,000. Love doesn't need to impress other people. The next thing he says is love is not puffed up. Love does not exhibit pride. That word puffed up, it means pride. By contrast, love itself is humble. It comes out of the shade of life to do the kind deed that it does and then slides right back into the shade of life, having never been known by outsiders to have been there. It's not thinking that love, what love has done, is outside of the ordinary. It just does it because it's love. God just does what he does because he loves us. He's not coming out from nowhere and trying to make it well known. It's all well known if you just read scripture. But God does what he does and then moves back into the shade. 1 Corinthians 13 and 5 says, does not behave rudely. Love does not behave rudely. In other words, love has manners. It knows how to act. Love knows how to act. Has anybody ever seen the, uh, the, the there was a show at least for a while, it may still run, Bridezilla's. Has anybody ever familiar with that or bride monsters i can't remember what the name of it was you think about these these brides that they'd get on this show they would create the biggest of scenes and obviously by the show the bigger the scene the bigger the show and that's what they were wanting to pro listen bridezilla is not an example of love love does not make a scene But somehow in our culture, it's become acceptable for adults to act like children when they're upset and they're disappointed. That's not love. Love doesn't do that. Love controls itself and says, yes, we may have a problem, we may have an issue, but I'm going to deal with it in an appropriate way because love has manners. The next thing he says is love does not seek its own. Now, this is interesting. Because love, what it does not do is it does not pursue its own interests. Now, if you don't have your own interests, I really question if you have a heartbeat and if you have breath in your lungs. Because every one of us has our own self-interest. And if you don't, you're dead, probably. But love, love goes counter to that. Love goes against that idea that is within us to protect self and guard self. Love does not pursue its own interests. If it is only ever about you, it's not about someone else, then that's not really love. 
And I'll give you a scriptural example. Abraham and Lot in separating. They came to a time where their herdsmen were arguing, they were fighting. Abraham saw what was about to happen and he put a stop to it. And he said, look, there's plenty of land here. We can separate and go our own ways. Abraham did not say, Lot, your men have been fighting with me. I'm taking my stuff and I'm going over here. What he did say is, Lot, look at this land. You choose. What do you want to do? And he left it up to Lot. He said, Lot, you have the first choice. You can choose what's beautiful down in the field, or you can choose the mountain, but we're going to separate because this will save us from this tension and from this argument. But you get to choose, and I'm putting your interest above my own. Lot, you choose, and I'll take what's left over. You see, love does not seek to advance itself. Instead, love gives. Henry Drummond wrote, the world is on the wrong scent, the pursuit of happiness. They think it consists in having and getting and in being served by others. There is no happiness in having or getting, but only in giving. And that's what love is. Love recognizes that someone else needs to be put above my own interests, above my own self, and that's how I show them that I love them. Love he says, is not provoked. Love does not have a hot temper, and love does not play psychological games. Love never says to you, I wonder why so-and-so did not speak to me today. That's not love. That's insecurity. Love never says to you, why did they snub me today? That's not love. Love does not know what it is to be angry over petty things. Because love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. Now, if you can't apply anything else and what I'm talking about today, every one of us can apply this. Because my own children can provoke me sometimes. And I have to remember, I love them. And I have to deal with them appropriately. Love is not provoked. The next thing he says is love thinks no evil. In other words, it does not nurse grudges against others. The Greek term used for thinks, love thinks no evil, is an accounting term. And what Paul was saying when he wrote this down is he was saying love does not keep account of the wrongs that it suffers. It doesn't keep count on the hurts. Now how many of us will admit that at some point we have in a tense conversation brought up before well you did just three of us the rest of us need to repent I'm just kidding four of us well you did love doesn't do that love does not keep account it doesn't think evil neither does it seek opportunity to get back he goes on and writes more, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love does not rejoice when bad things happen to others. And love does not find satisfaction in the sin of others. I was reading a while back the story of Jacob, Jacob wrestling with the angel. And he wrestled, he held him all through the night. 
And at the end of the conclusion of that night, the angel recognizes that he would not be released. Instead, he, would, he, he decided he would touch the hollow of Jacob's leg. And when Jacob left the fight, he limped back to the camp where they were camped. And he would end up limping for the rest of his life. In verse 32 of Genesis chapter 32, it says, Therefore to this day the children of Israel... Do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. I was reading this this, uh, Jewish commentary on the scripture, and they made the statement in here that there's a simple explanation of why the chosen of God do not eat the portion of meat, that portion of meat that shrank. And it's so simple, I've never thought about it but it just makes excellent sense. And they said, we must not feast on the failures and the shortcomings of others because love does not do that. Failures and shortcomings of others. We must not feast on those failures and those shortcomings of others. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. But there are five things that love is. 1 Corinthians 13 and 4, we started, love suffers long and is kind. It restrains itself when provoked and is eager to act in kindness. It's not only patient and long-suffering, but it acts in kindness. It's eager to do kind things. That is love. 1 Corinthians 13 and 6 uh, does not rejoice in iniquity, but instead it rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. It does not celebrate a win. When you win an argument, that's nothing. But when you celebrate when truth is established, that's something. That's love. 1 Corinthians 13 and 7, love bears all things. Love covers. The word here that's used means cover, protect. It means like a roof over the top of someone. Your love protects you. And it protects the person it cares about. That's what love does. It finds ways to forgive and to forget. And Jesus sought a cover for the ones who nailed him on the cross. You think about what Jesus said. He said, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. What was he doing? He was offering protection over those people. All of heaven stood ready to come and revenge the death of our Lord and Savior. But he said, don't do it. Just wait. Hold off. Cover them. Protect them. Forgive them. They may never ask for it, but I want you to forgive them. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Proverbs 17 and 9, He who covers a transgression seeks love. It does not mean that they're wanting to be loved by the person that they cover the transgression. It means they're seeking to love that person. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. The next thing he writes is love believes all things. Now listen, that does not mean love is gullible. However, it does mean that love gives the benefit of doubt. And love is ready to be generous with faith toward others. You tell me you, you did a certain thing because of this, this, and this. I'm going to believe you. It believes the best of others' actions. Love, trust, and puts confidence in others. 
And I think this is a key thing in marriage relationships. You need to trust that your husband or your wife, that whatever they do is for the good of the family. It's having faith toward them. Love hopes in all things. Love is an optimist. Love is an optimist. The word hope for us is a future tense of anticipation for something good to come. Love is hoping for the best to come out. Love is hoping for all things to turn to that good thing. Love refuses to acknowledge defeat and instead clings to hope. He said love endures all things. The word endure means to remain under the load. Now, this is something I could probably preach a whole sermon on this one thing right here. Love endures all things. It means to stay under the load. To stay under the burden. To not run away. To not give up. To not surrender. Love does not bail from the burden that it carries. It keeps staying and working, trying to resolve itself. I'm reminded of the prophet that God told to go and marry a prostitute. And she kept bailing and running away, and he kept having to pursue her. And it's this picture, this beautiful picture of God's love for his people that are sinful, but he keeps going back to them, trying to draw them back into the relationship. That prophet loved. Because he was willing to carry and bear the burden. And here's the thing about bearing burdens. It will cause you pain. It will cause you pain. Just a while back, uh, we were moving something heavy for my my in-laws, and I went to go help. And it was this very fine piece of china cabinet that my mother-in-law just had to have. And I have a truck that could accommodate it. So I went with straps to help and get this piece of furniture. And I, y'all, I'm talking, this thing was heavy. Now, look at me. If it's heavy for me, it was heavy. It was very heavy. And my father-in-law and I, we get this thing. Fortunately, it did come apart to a top and a bottom. The top was super light. The bottom of that thing was heavy. So we start moving it out, and my fingers under the edge, because it's solid wood, started just to, the skin was starting to tear. And every fiber in my body said, drop this thing. <laughs> but I knew it would just hurt my mother-in-law if I did. And so I, I kept holding it, and I kept carrying it. And I ended up having a little cut on my hand where it had torn through the skin. And eventually I did get to a position where I could set it on my leg and grab a better handle. But that, that's what love does. Love endures the struggle. It endures the pain. It endures the suffering. It endures the things that are brought upon it. And it does not bail from the burden. It carries the burden. And it doesn't look and say, well, I'm going to carry it this long and then I'll be done. Love endures. It's the love of Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross was so horrible and so heinous, just a miserable death for anyone, especially for an innocent man. Shameful. 
but he endured the cross. Why? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He endured. Love endures all things. So here's a simple test about love. How do I know if I'm succeeding or failing at love? How do I know if I'm succeeding or failing at love? Now, there's any number of things we could say. We could say, you know, um, how I treat people, the kindness that I exude, or uh, what, I, what I do for others, and, uh, you know, how I treat the ones closest to me, or how I care for them in, in these troubling times that we find ourselves in, or the trials that we go through. But I, I want to give you an even simpler response. How do I know if I'm succeeding or failing at love? The answer is, did it cost you something? Did it cost you something? Did you pay a price for that love? The love Paul has described, it costs. Every one of those things that he mentions, it costs something to do that. It costs us our comfort. My own comfort is pushed to the side whenever I take someone else and elevate them and their interest above my own. It cost me my comfort. It cost me my perspective of self. I have to become second if I'm going to treat someone else the way that they should be treated with that kind of love. It cost me my pride because believe me, you will be humbled. You have to be humbled in order to love someone like that because humility is the thing that chooses to take a back seat to someone else and elevate them over yourself. It will cost you position because it puts you in the place of a servant and opens you up to being hurt. And that's the final thing that it would cost you is it costs you rejection because not every kind of love like this is reciprocated. It's easy for phileo to be reciprocated. That's an attachment. That's tenderness. But whenever it comes to agape and loving someone the way that you're supposed to love them, you're open to rejection. And I'll I'll tell you why. Because love, this kind of love that Paul was talking about, love seeks the welfare of the one that you love. That's why. And what does welfare involve? It, just, it doesn't just involve healing. We think of, we think of the, the parable of, parable of the, um, just left my brain. How about you? Samaritan man. He's traveling and he finds there a man that's been hurt. And he shows love. Not, not a single person of us would say, he, didn't, he wasn't showing love. And he takes the man to the end and he says, whatever it takes, get him healed. And love does involve healing. But sometimes, love involves hurting. And I don't mean intentional hurting of just being vengeful, being angry. 
I'm talking about hurting because you love them so much that you see the outcome that you choose instead to bring a brief moment of hurt to keep them from having worse things happen. An example would be my loving your children so much that you discipline them. If you don't discipline your children, you don't love them. Because life is going to destroy their life if they don't have some discipline and some correction. The same way God says, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You're going to get chastened sometimes because God loves you. Disciplining my children hurts them. But it's also done because I love them. And whenever you do that, when you're like that with anyone, you love them to heal them, but you also love them because you have to help and guide them in correction. There's a chance it's going to be rejected. There's a chance it's going to be rejected. I've had serious conversations with friends, and I've told them this is what I see happening, to have that rejected being harsh you're being mean no I'm not I love you I want to see the best for you and it pains me to put us in this position but I love you you see love involves healing and sometimes hurting but love always 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 involves helping it involves helping so the test of love is this Did love cost you something? Did you pay a price? Because he paid a price. He paid the price of your sins and my sins. He paid it all, Calvary. That's love. That's love. If you'll stand with me.